This is a quote from Ajahn Amaro's Small Boat, Great Mountain that I read from the other evening. And he's quoting uh, from the Buddha, from the Udana Sutta. There is that sphere of being. There is that sphere of being where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. The elements. He's saying there is a place where there is none of the elements that is knowable. And then he goes on to name the the four immaterial jhana states, these four immaterial high absorption states. There is that sphere of being where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. No experience of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of no thingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. Here, there is neither this world nor another world, neither moon nor sun, neither moon nor sun. This sphere of being I call neither a coming nor a going, nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. It is the end of dukkha. Repeating the last part. Here there is neither this nor another world. Neither moon nor sun. This sphere of being I call neither a coming nor a going, nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. It is the end of dukkha. Tonight we are going to be exploring the penultimate of our uh, links of liberation that we've been that we've been going through, and uh, as we go through this next to last one of liberation, we could call it emancipation. In the, the sense of an arhat, it's referred to as vimuti, this full liberation. It's uh, a liberation meaning that the mind is moving away from the entanglements. So there's gradual or partial moving away from entanglements. And then uh, as we get deeper into it, a more profound level of this liberation. And finally, a full liberation. This full liberation can be so um, inviting to us that we get a little carried away with it sometimes and thinking our our only focus is it. But there's all of this... um, uh, uh, available moments of liberation that we've all felt on this retreat. And so uh, to hold this sense of a full liberation, a full awakening in the context of the gradual path. Here's what Suzuki Roshi, the, the founder of the Zen Center, had to say about, the, uh, about this uh, wanting to make full liberation something distant and something so special in a way that that's not related to us as as uh, beings. And we'll hear later what Ajahn Chah had to say in the same way. If you continue this practice, if you continue this simple practice every day, you will obtain a wonderful power. Before you attain it, it is something wonderful. But after you attain it, it is nothing special. Before you attain it, it is something wonderful. But after you attain it, it is nothing special. You may say universal nature or Buddha nature or enlightenment. You may call it by many names. But for the person who has it, it is nothing and it is something. I love that description of how to gently hold our very aspiration rather than making it 
something uh, other in a way that um, uh, gets gets in the way of what's what's available to us. So liberation, this liberation, it is it is um, supported by the disenchantment that John took us through so beautifully the other evening, two evenings ago, when he talked about we 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 start to no longer be uh, seduced by, dazzled by the things that the mind might want or get to want to get rid of. We don't believe it anymore. We just don't see it as, as being such a true promise. That, yeah, it might be a little better, but it too is going to pass. So we, we have, we're just not seduced. The mind uh, can't be seduced by what arises in it in the same way. Very helpful, this disenchantment. And likewise, liberation is supported by dispassion that uh, Gil took us through last night. This kind of clear scene. Uh, once, we're, once we're not caught up in the wanting, not believing the wanting, we really start to have this, this kind of objective getting real with our experience getting real with it. We, we've seen it clearly in a certain way. So, liberation. Liberation. There's a moment of liberation that happens repeatedly for us where we let go of something we're holding on to. How many times in the course of this, these weeks together have you let go of something your, your, your uh, body was hurting in some place and you were complaining about it or doing the if only. I'd really have a great meditation if my back wasn't hurting. And you let loose of that and you just accepted the back hurting. You liberated in that moment the mind from its wanting. So many moments of these. Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, teaches that if we did not have these temporary, um, momentary, nibbana moments that we would all go crazy. Because the release that occurs in this moment, the temporary release, the temporary liberation from all the greed, hatred, and delusion, just for a brief flickering, our nervous system gets that release. And our nervous systems, which are so prone to pushing and pulling, really need the release. They really need the release. That's part of what is so great about the Qigong practice is that we get this feel movement in terms of the push and the release in that way. And so when we think about a kind of momentary liberation, we can have a, a liberation from a particular episode of our lives that has really haunted us. And it, we get so liberated that it's no longer sticky for us. That's a moment of liberation. Not final liberation, not full liberation, not a crossing a threshold liberation, but uh, an end to suffering from that source in our lives. So it can be episodic around that un unfortunate event that happened to us. It can come from a whole uh, section of our life, some story that we've carried around forever. And over and over again, we have gotten triggered by a particular story. And through our practice, one day, that same story arises and it doesn't have a charge. We see the pain in it. We see that young girl or that young man that was uh, hurt in some way or did something that was really clumsy that there's regret about, but the charge is gone. Not the memory of the pain, but the identification with the pain, the carrying it around, the taking birth in it. It's just one of the things that formed us. And we can start to have a whole new relationship to it where we see wisdom from our former clumsiness, where we see suffering by, of all parties and something that was so hard for us, feeling abandoned at a certain age, feeling disregarded, disrespected, feeling like a failure, um, having uh, a, a 
uh, some sort of health challenge that didn't really get worked out, that we have to live with on an ongoing basis. Our whole relationship to uh, some story gets liberated. And we become so much less interested in the soap opera of it. We can, in general, get less interested in the soap opera of our lives as it's going on right now, here on retreat, or even when we go back to our, our regular daily lives, we can discover, you know, these, this being also interested in the highs, wanting to get this, get that, or so afraid of the lows. They're just highs, they're just lows. We certainly prefer one to the other, but they're just highs, they pass, they're just lows, they pass. And we have been disenchanted, we have seen with dispassion, and we're liberated from our addiction to our soap opera. And if you don't think you're addicted to your soap opera, just wait and watch. <laughs> so, this, this, this kinds of liberation can come in many, many forms. Um, there was, uh, there's uh, liberation from old identities per se. I just want to flip through uh, a, a series of these letting loose, this kind of liberation from identities. Uh, I describe it when I write about it, about the myth of fingerprints. How because we have this individual body and these unique experiences that we only have in our minds, we get confused and make it a self. We get into an identity. And each of these uh, by itself can be like a compelling identity. But when we've got three or four of them going at once, boy, that's, that's a lot of being entangled. So you're not your emotions. You can be liberated from the belief that you are arising and passing emotions because you have seen that they arise and pass. You're not your history. You see that the history is just a, a momentary experience that happened over this piece and that piece and this other piece, and that there is not a solidity to it, although it definitely happened. And it is to be met with, with a, a kind of care and treated with dignity. You're not your responsibilities and habits. What an identity to let loose of. For me, that this is one of the ones that I can so easily fall into is becoming so identified with my responsibilities. And, that's, and so we can start to see that, no, that's just a trait of a personality. And the habits are not even exactly traits. They're just these patterns of mind that repeat. And as we see a particular habit of mind, we go, that's just a habit of mind. We see the suffering of it often enough. We see its endless repetition. We see it comes out of nowhere, as Gill was pointing out. We see that it's conditioned-based. We are liberated from our responsibilities and our habits. We can be liberated from our personas. So often we have uh, developed a persona that doesn't even quite fit us. But we've presented it to other people for so long that we, we can't imagine not being part of it anymore. But we can be liberated from our persona. And boy, does that feel good. Does that ever feel good? It doesn't mean that we have to let loose of our persona. We can always put it on as needed. But we're not confused anymore that we are the persona, this public face we present. And we can be liberated from our identification with our ego. How many times on this retreat have you seen your ego wanting something, judging, comparing, and said, oh, that's just my ego wanting. That was a moment of liberation. This liberation can grow and mature in such a way that you truly know that you're not your ego. You truly know it. You're not an enlightened being, but you're not that deluded anymore either. We each have this capability. And then, finally, we can be liberated from believing that our private self, these thoughts we have that nobody else knows, and these longings we have that nobody else knows we have, that that's really us. That is maybe the most seductive of all, this private self. That's really me. It is somehow seems solid. Because I can look and it's always there in some way. 
So it takes a lot of time and patience seeing that it, when you look, it's very different from one time to the next. And it can have very different views from one time to the next. And so over time, this liberation from believing that our inner thoughts and feelings represent the solid self. A liberation from mind moments that are coming out of that identification. So many ways of, of this temporary or, or partial or aspect liberation. I remember being in a retreat maybe, I can't remember now, maybe 15 years ago, it was before there was a building here at Spirit Rock sitting with uh, some of my colleagues and this teacher who had been back on the East Coast to visit the, the, the house, the apartment she grew up in and she was talking about going to visit the people who live there now and meeting this wonderful woman who had been uh, through a lot in life. And she, as she sat at the kitchen table and talked with her, she realized this woman has a real degree of liberation. She has accepted life as it is. She's never heard of the Dharma, but she has accepted life as it is. I remember sitting in that retreat and being so moved by that story because we don't want to think that the Dharma is the only way that that this kind of movement towards liberation happens because the, the Dharma is moving us to liberation. And we, we don't want to say, well, well we're, we're, we're different in some way, but we're, we're very fortunate to have these skillful means, a very uh, laid out path with, uh, with a lot of different supports in a different way that I would say that for most of us can carry us further down this path of liberation all the way to full liberation. So, this, this uh, turning to the full liberation in this way, uh, we, we, uh, we can, uh, and the way that we ordinarily see it in terms of the presentations about liberation, it's, it is towards these four categories of liberation that occur, that's a, that represents a kind of crossover where the mind gets reconfigured. The mind gets reconfigured and, um, and uh, it's based around uh, looking at these various fetters of mind that come up and that, that we uh, gradually move through one category and another and another to full liberation as we let loose of these fetters at various points. This can feel um, uh, very uh, removed, it can feel uh, sort of um, theoretical and uh, so we want to approach all of those kinds of uh, teachings with a degree of staying grounded in our immediate experience and hear it in terms of our immediate experience. The gateway, it's taught, to all of these uh, uh, crossover uh, experiences of liberation comes through one of three gates. One gate is the gate of anicca, of impermanence. That as we see the impermanence of things, that we we are moved away from this identification, all of the different kinds of identification that I listed earlier and many others. Ceasing to believe in certain things that entrap us. We let loose of that. We, we start to have a change in view, a change in understanding. And uh, sometimes this coming through the, the gateway of Nietzsche is called the, the signless gateway because we see that everything that's conditioned is, uh, is, is, is always changing. And so it's signless. There's no sign of these, all these conditions that are coming up. And this is, a, um, this is a, a feeling of freedom that comes because we, our solidity around this thinking there's this unchanging permanence gets broken open. This is from... Uh, Long Chinpa. Since everything in life is but a temporary appearance, perfect in being what it is, since everything in life is a temporary appearance, perfect in being what it is, having nothing to do with good or bad, acceptance or rejection, 
one may well burst out in laughter. This little opening, oh, it's all changing. My fixity around it is something I'm imposing. It's not that we're uh, giving up our view in terms of what would be skillful or not, or, or giving up caring about justice. It's not that. This is a different level of looking at things. So this gateway of an, 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 of a Nietzsche. And then we can also come through the, the gateway of dukkha, where we, we, we are drawn to understanding dukkha. So we, it's maybe because we have a lot of dukkha in our lives, or we grew up in a situation where there was a lot of dukkha. Something attracts us about dukkha. And we, we just, we're drawn to it and we penetrate dukkha in such a way that the mind starts to have understanding that liberates, this penetrating understanding that liberates the mind from its attachment, from its clinging, from its thirsting after one thing after another as described in the Second Noble Truth. Thirsting after sense desires, thirsting after becoming, thirsting after not becoming, not being in some way. And this, we just see that uh, that the we have this uh, this disenchantment and this dispassion around desire, and suddenly we really get it. Desires are temporary. Does any happiness they bring is temporary, and in the very bringing of the happiness are the seeds of discontent because it's going to leave, because I'm going to get tired of it, because I'm going to want more, I'm going to be afraid somebody's going to take it from me. And so we start to be liberated from our habits of going with desires, of reifying desire in our mind, of, of this myth that if we just have all that we desired, boy, then we would be happy. Then we would be happy. And... Um, this is, a, this is a little poem that I think captures this uh, in a certain way. I'm choosing poems that are not directly, I'm wanting to get a feeling tone in the room about these things, not so much like pinpoint everything down, but get in the mood of it. A day so happy, fog lifted early. I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was no thing on earth I wanted to possess. There was no thing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envy in him. What e whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that once I was the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw the blue sea and sails. Just this ease, the ease that comes when the mind is liberated from desire. For just a moment, for part of our lives, for this one thing that we've desired over and over again. And then there's the gateway of emptiness, or shunyata it's called, tied in with anatta, the, the, when we start to see that what we think is self is not self, that what we uh, thought to be solid is in fact empty. This is uh, the way Rumi talks about this. I start out on this road, call it love or emptiness. I start out on this road, this eightfold path, I start out on this road, call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment seeds, back-scratching greed, worrying about outcome, worrying about outcome, worrying about outcome. <laughs> Fear of people. When a bird gets free, it doesn't go back for remnants left on the bottom of the cage. Close by I'm rain, far off a cloud of fire. I seem re restless, but I'm deeply at ease. Branches tremble, the roots are still. I am a universe in a handful of dirt, holy when, whole when totally demolished. 
talk about choices does not apply to me, while intelligence considers options, I'm somewhere lost in the wind. Moving beyond uh, having to cultivate wisdom because we have become wisdom. Not having greed, hatred, and delusion arising. This was this kind of uh, movement into the full liberation in terms of this. And so as we, we go through this, we, st- we start to um, have uh, whatever degree of liberation uh, and whatever gateway in, we start to have an understanding of all the Four Noble Truths. And so, just as we started with suffering in this whole chain of dependent liberation, so we start to be able to see suffering in a new way. And we start to see all the Four Noble Truths in a new way. And it is said that full liberation is the point when all four Noble Truths are completely understood in all their aspects. They're all realized at once. Said and done. This is a, a, a poem from a, an early uh, Buddhist nun. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. Maybe we can relate to that here on retreat. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, here the, the limitations. So there was faith, but still the, the liberation was just where it was. There was the liberation to the point of having faith, but that was how far it went. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And, as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching had been done. So that this um, presence now of that possibility of this full liberation informs us and cultivates the conditions where this moment here and this moment there, this releasing here, releasing there, of liberation can occur. As we uh, 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 understand more the nature of mind and the nature of reality, we start to see those first of the the three of the ten fetters that, uh, that are all released, all dispelled, as we uh, enter into uh, liberation, starting with becoming what's called a, a, a stream enterer. And those first three fetters, I just wanted to mention them, not to cause a lot of thinking about them, but I, I didn't feel right about not having them here in the room with us. And that is personality view. Personality view. Uh, this, uh, this is called Sakyaditi. Uh, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho talks about how the personality view is so tied into thinking. And thinking can always say, but on the other hand, yeah, this, is, this, this makes some sense, but look what I would give up. It always can see the other side. It can always argue. It can always, uh, if we take it seriously, uh, stop us from going on the path. So the letting loose of personality view, not that we don't have a personality, because uh, Sumedho also teaches that our personality never gets enlightened. Sitting here in this room, when he said this, there was this, this was on a 10-day retreat, and the whole room went, whew. <laughs> So the letting loose of personality view, and uh, then the... Uh, 
the uh, doubt, we start to have faith. Like in the poem I just read, she had faith. She was full of faith, still struggling, but she had faith. Not that there's not momentary doubt as we go along, but the doubt becomes less and less till at some point there is no doubt anymore. And then this, the third fetter is this uh, uh, mis, uh, misplacement of, of reliance on rules and rituals where we believe that only through rules and rituals we can get free and we don't have to do this individual work, that we don't have to show up in this moment with mindfulness and compassion, that we get to avoid, we get to do a spiritual bypass of dukkha and the causes of dukkha through some sort of ritual that we might do or some sort of uh, rites we might perform. And uh, that allows us to say, okay, I start here, I start now. And it's just this moment, just this moment. And I meet this moment with faith and I meet this moment with this compassionate uh, mindfulness that there is, the mind is liberated to the point that this, this is available to us at this stage. And it goes on from there. We're not going to be exploring this tonight. In my uh, understanding and certainly in my own practice experience, I do not think of liberation as an achievement. And so I, I want to offer that as a suggestion to all of us that it is not an achievement that to whatever degree of liberation that occurs with us, it is an attainment. There's not the ego achieving anything because of of conditions being right. All of the seeds we planted all along, remember about the seeds when you can have faith in seeds, that something finally occurs. It's an attainment. The reason that this is important to me is it takes the pressure off of my doing. Oh, I'm not being a good enough yogi. Oh, if I'd practice more, if I'd go on more retreat. Oh, this, where I'm, this, this ego self is suddenly in charge of liberation. Now, do I really believe my ego self understands liberation? How liberated does it seem to be? Not so much. So it would be a mistake of where the lesser uh, could understand the more. And this is, a, in logic, this is, a, this is impossible. <laughs> and so we, we, let, we let loose of this, I'm going to achieve. Rather, I'm going to be available to the Dhamma. And being available to the Dhamma with sincerity, with patience and persistence, all of the qualities that we talk about with this very modest attitude, just being available, there emerges, just emerges, these various levels of attainment. People sometimes say it feels like grace when something's been let loose. It feels like grace. I feel funny using that word, but that's what it feels like. Or it, uh, dead people are just flooded with gratitude. There's not a, th a chest thumping or a high-fi feeling about liberation. No, the, whatever degree of liberation we bow to, we bow to and go into gratitude. Not, not a, a possessing of it. Ajahn Chah says that if we let go of suffering a little, if we let, I'm sorry, if we let go of attachment a little, then we have a little reduction in suffering. If we let go of attachment a lot, we have a, a lot of a reduction in suffering. And if we let go of attachment completely, we let go of all suffering. So it's all on a spectrum. It's not just one place. Ajahn Chah used to say, we focus on the here and now Dharma. This is where we can let go of things and resolve our difficulties. We look at the present and see continuous arising and ceasing. When the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain, the problems of grasping and attachment start to decrease and wither away. 
I keep saying this, but people do not take it to heart. So, Ajahn Chah suffered the karma of teaching. <laughs> so, as we, as we uh, start to get a taste of liberation, one shadow side is this achievement feeling. The other shadow side is that it can fall into a, a misunderstanding where it's like indifference. Oh, now, if I'm indifferent, I'm liberated. The mind's liberated if it's indifferent. It's not, it's not an indifference. It's not an indifference. The liberation, as, as T.S. Eliot put it, teaches to care and not to care, to sit still, to be able to sit in the caring without grasping over onto it, without being caught in having to have what we care about. And uh, to uh, be able to care, we want our children to uh, be well-educated and to be safe. We want our friends to be healthy. We want to be healthy. We want to have peace in the world. These are our preferences. These are things we care about. They They are wholesome goals that we can have. So we're not indifferent. But we're not demanding. Our attitude is not a demanding, not an insistent on what we care about. This takes a level of, of, uh, of patience, of being in this in-between place where we care and yet we're not going to results. And this, it takes a lot of time hanging out in that place to really start to feel it. It is such a wonderful place to have this freedom from the demand that we have things be the way we want them, or demand that our friends, demand that our lover be the way we want her or him to be. We're willing to let people be as they are and still care about them. We're willing to work to change something in our communities or in the, in the nation or the world as a whole and yet be willing to live with it as it is, to not be rejecting this moment or anything in this moment, to, to receive everything with this dignity I've pointed to over and over again, even as we are doing what we can to bring about what we believe is a higher good. We may be wrong. We may be wrong. Even as we move towards what we think is a higher good, we could be going in the wrong direction. We can own that, we can know that, if we're not fixated on the results. Otherwise, even our caring develops a rigidity that is really uh, infected with attachment and clinging and not openness. So therefore we can't learn we're wrong. Or if we discover we're wrong, we become bitter. Or if we're not appreciated, we become bitter. This is all because the mind-heart is not liberated. As we understand this as a cause of suffering, liberation naturally arises from seeing the suffering just as it arises from seeing change, just as it arises from seeing the lack of substantialness and and what we take to be this solid, unchanging self. Ajahn Chah would ask, Have you ever seen still water? The, the monastics would nod. Yes, of course. We've seen still water before. At the same time, they were probably saying inwardly, Now that's a pretty strange question. But outwardly, everyone was very respectful to Ajahn Chah. Then he would ask, Well then, have you seen flowing water? And that also seemed a strange thing to ask, but they responded, yes, we've seen flowing water, so I ask you, have you seen still water? Not ahead. <laughs> Everybody's awake. Have, have you seen still water? 
Then he would ask, did you ever see still flowing water? Did you ever see still flowing water? Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. This is the paradox, flowing and still. Uh, Name and form, emptiness and fullness. This liberated mind can handle paradox. It can handle things that on the surface seem opposite. It can contain the opposites. The liberated mind contain the the opposites. In our lives, we have a lot of opposites we deal with. We can have very opposite feelings towards a good friend. In some way, we really like her. In some way, we have a lot of reservations about her. This paradox holding the opposites in this way. Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. He would use the word chitta for the knowing mind, the mind of awareness, which we've pointed to so much in this retreat, the mind of awareness. The chitta itself is totally still. This is this awareness that is non-moving. We've had you uh, at various times be aware of awareness, you have this awareness of knowing in this way. The chitta itself is totally still. It has no movement. It's not related to all that arises and ceases. It is silent and spacious. Mind, objects, sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, and emotions flow through it. Problems arise because the clarity of the mind gets entangled with sense impressions. The untrained heart chases the delightful, runs away from the painful, and as a result finds itself struggling, alienated, and miserable. Had a moment or two of that in the retreat. This awareness, when the mind is liberated from its uh, fixation on objects of experience to what we're experiencing, and is resting back in awareness, it's got this clarity. It's liberated temporarily only. It's temporarily liberated from this grasping, from the greed, from the aversion, from the delusion. We have touched this on this retreat, all of us in one time or another. Once I was um, uh, with this teacher that I, I studied with in India, who um, uh, uh, he's very interested in this area of awareness and consciousness, and um, has uh, in his own many years ago. He's in his eighties now, but a uh, long time ago, in his uh, in oh, fifty years ago now. Uh, he went through his own period time of deep samadhi. He spent three days in samadhi, actually. Three straight days in samadhi with no cognition of it all, being in samadhi. But and out of this, he became very uh, interested in and had a number of insights about consciousness. And over a number of years, I've studied with him about this because he has certain ways of describing meditation experiences that I hope to eventually be able to share uh, in our tradition because it's they're very they're very useful in a practical way uh, these are not insights of liberation but they're insights that help you understand what's going on in the mind as you're moving on our path of liberation so uh, i really liked uh, to sit with him but he would seldom uh, still true he will seldom sit with me uh, he, he just won't do it. He won't give me that kind of meditation time with him. He's quite happy to have me go off and meditate under uh, one of his trees at his ashram, but uh, he, he, he won't sit with me very often. So he announced one day that he and I were going to go off and meditate in this big cave, uh, and, uh, and we would be there for quite some time. So I was very excited about this, that I was going to get to sit with him in this cave. So... Um, uh, it's uh, this very arduous situation. He's on one side of a river and I stay on this other side of the river and we have to get into this car and we have to go on this long uh, uh, twisting road with all of these leaning into the, uh, the, you know, the canyons and the crevices. And we arrive at this place where, the, where he says, okay, to this driver of this car, stop here. And we walk down this long road and 
uh, we come to the entrance of the cave. And unbeknownst to him, the people had uh, started to refurbish this uh, this uh, meditation center around the cave because he thought the cave was going to be empty, but there were people there. I was like, oh, this isn't going to work out. So I had a little attitude moment. And uh, we walk into this cave maybe for three minutes, and it's totally dark. And we turn a corner, and here's, here are people chanting. You could not hear a word of the chanting. It was totally consumed in that part of the cave. And there were these people, maybe ten people, and there was a, 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 you know, a leader leading the chant. And so we walk on, and the sound of the chanting disappears. And now we're really in the dark. And in one of these great uh, teacher-student moments, he reaches out and takes my hand because I can't see anything, but he knows this cave. And so he's just walking through and I'm commenting on the experience in real time, of course. Oh, now isn't this a teacher-student moment? And uh, we turn another corner in the cave and uh, here sits all of these people in the dark. And there's one little candle thing up front and they're just sitting there. And I first discover them by running into one of them. <laughs> and he leads me up to the very front of the cave and sits me on this rock, because there's only rocks in this cave. And there's a little uh, altar there where the candle is and there's, there's some altar symbols. And he hops up on this altar symbol. And so this is the way we're going to do our meditation with all these other people in this room. Not at all what I was expecting. but So here I am sitting with him. We're sitting there for a while, and, and they, some people back there start to speak. And he yells, quiet, with total authority. I was impressed with that. And so everybody gets very quiet and still. And then at some point, I hear him scooting around up there. And so I open my eyes, what's he doing, you know? And I can't tell what he's doing, but he's scooting around, because there's only this little candlelight. And then he hops down off the altar, and he gives me a little tin, like a sardine can tin. And he says, put this in your backpack. And whatever you do, don't open it. And I nod yes. And he says, sit. So he leaves. And I sit. He doesn't say how long, right? So I don't know how long he wants me to sit. So I don't ask that question. I sit till I'm ready to move. And so I finally leave. And I come out of the cave and he says, why did you stay so long? <laughs> and then he says, now go sit down by the Ganges. So I go sit down there for a while. And again, when I come back, he says, why did you stay so long? So then we get back in the car and we go to this other place in the river and we walk. It seems like we stop in no place. And he asks, he says, you still got the can, right? And I said, sure. And um, we, we walk with no sign of visible life anywhere. And we uh, this quite long path. And here sits a guy in a boat, a little canoe kind of boat. And um, uh, we get in that, and we get out in the middle of the stream, and we sit in the middle of the stream. Pretty dharmic, huh? And, uh, and so he gives a little dharma talk, and then we paddle, he, the person takes us to the further shore. So we get on the further shore, and we walk down to this little uh, rock-sitting place, and he says, so, you, you still have the, the, the tin, right? And I said, yes. And he said, it's very fortunate that you didn't open it. it. I was like, I wouldn't have considered opening it because it wasn't my tin and he had asked me not to open it. So there was never a conflict of curiosity or anything like that in me. So he said, well, give me the tin. So he opens it and out hops this scorpion who is very upset. <laughs> He's very upset. And, and so uh, the teacher says, you know, our minds are like the scorpion. Their minds have a, uh, a, a, are caught in wanting these, condi- these right conditions and they're dangerous to us. They can sting us with all of these different kinds of desires. They can sting us. And so we have to be careful. But at some point, we have to engage in practice. And that practice contains the desires, contains the hindrances, contains greed, hatred, and delusion. And uh, our mind doesn't like that. 
And so it's even more dangerous once we've, en- once we've engaged in this process because the mind wants to rebel. He says, so that's why we have to be careful and, and really have our practice be a strong container. And um, that was it. And uh, uh, we walked back, got in the boat, came back the other side, and that was, that was the experience of, of, of this looking at the mind in a real way. What he was pointing to there was the, the, uh, all of the moments that are necessary for this kind of uh, crossover of, of stream enter liberation. We, there's, a, there's a call to uh, uh, cultivate moment to moment of liberation through the containment of our practice, not in a big doing way, but in this relaxed attention that we've stressed over and over again in this retreat, where we, we trust our aspiration, we have faith in our aspiration, where we know how to gladden our minds, and that we can contain being present for the dukkha in our lives, where we can see clearly a Nietzsche, where we can see clearly that which is not self, which we have taken to be self, without going off into a big reaction to what we're seeing, because our scorpion mind can do that. And so that's, that's a part of this liberation. And knowing that in our moments when we think our practice isn't going well, and we're staying with the practice, you know, you'd had two days, it was going so great, now it's just your mind's wandering and you think, ah, I've lost it and all of this. All of those moments are just as valuable because you're containing that moment with your mindfulness, with your compassion, as best you're able. And as we do that, we are developing this uh, really profound level with the ever-changing flow of experience. It's really true. Think about it just in terms of yourself and this retreat. It's there that it's that it, it, you have contained your experience. You have stayed present for it. A lot of boring experiences, a lot of wanting times, a lot of aversion times, a, a lot of confused times. You have stayed present. Perfectly present? No. If you could do it perfectly present, we'd all be sitting at your feet. <laughs> so... <laughs> Why is it that this judging mind has such authority? Where does it get its authority? Can it do that? Can it be perfect? So why do we listen to this judging mind? And comparing mind? What does comparing mind know? Does it know everything that this person you think is so still, that their practice is so good and your practice is so bad compared to, or just the opposite? What does it know? Where does it get its authority? We give it through delusion, this judging mind, this comparing mind, authority. If we liberate ourselves from judging mind and comparing mind, we so help our practice. We can come to understand that it's always delusion, this judging and comparing. Not discernment. Discernment's a necessary part. Mindfulness brings acuity of discernment. So you could look at it as a kind of judging, but it's not that. Judging is a labeling, good, bad. Comparing's better than, worse than, same as. It's not, it's not that the discernment's got a whole other feel to it. Discernment is for the purpose of liberating the mind. A yogi uh, was in interview the other day, and she said, you know, I just had this uh, realization that it is maybe possible for the mind to not be filled with greed, hatred, and delusion. I actually can imagine this. I was really uh, thrilled to hear that, really happy for her, because it is another degree of faith when we can actually see that this might be true, hear the might in that, just the possibility that it's true. At that point, there is a degree of liberation from doubt. I call that moment the imaginative possible. And by that I don't mean uh, imagining making up. I mean that possibility of something is so real to us 
that we have faith in it. We don't know for sure, but I can see where this might be true. Just that much sense of the possibility is enough faith, in my experience, to keep going in practice. So this imaginative possible moment, you may have had various imaginative possible moments about uh, this story that has caused you so much suffering or about some trauma that keeps uh, going through your body in various ways or uh, about some, uh, some kind of um, uh, struggle you're having right now that you go, I don't have to be defined by that story. I don't have to be defined by that condition. It will characterize my life because it's true. You know, I, I'm dealing with this health situation. It's true. But that just characterizes this. It's not a me or mine. It's what characterizes this moment. It does not have to define it. Anytime we move from being defined by something that's occurring in the mind to having it just characterize the moment, that to me is a moment of liberation. Moving from defin- de- being defined by to being characterized by from defined by to characterized by. And at this stage in the retreat, there's such a, a possibility of, of doing this over and over again when we're really being caught, feeling that attachment, we just let loose. We just let loose. And we can do this, letting go in this way. I want to... Um, end with um, uh, two things. Ajahn Sumedho says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. Just in case anybody in the room, just one or two people, ever experienced compulsive thinking. The the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamakaya and the Prajnaparamita and then get ordinance in the Hinayana, Mahayana and in Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. Maybe this could be our practice tomorrow. And then he says, and he means every word when he says this, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go. Let go. Until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So let's sit for a moment. This way and that way, I tried to keep the pale together. This way and that way, I tried to keep the pale together, hoping the weak bamboo would never break. Suddenly, the bottom fell out. No more water. No more moon in the water. Emptiness in my hand. No more water, no more moon in the water, emptiness in my hand.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.